We're not perfect. We all have things that people might not like to see. And I like to show my faults. Grace Jones. Hello, everybody. Welcome. It is time for another episode of Felonious Pundits. I am Kintad Svensgaard, and along with me as always, please say hello to your friend and mine, Mr. A.J. Mass. Ooh, we are guaranteed we in for some hoedown of the whole morning on this one. This show is hotter than a cayenne pepper, uh, <laughs> A.J. <laughs> Yeah, everybody, this podcast is about the television program Criminal Minds. We like to recap and take an in-depth look at each episode of the show each week. I have never seen the show before, and AJ is our grizzled veteran on this Criminal Minds scene who has watched each and every episode multiple times. So this week, the show we're talking about is Season 2, Episode 18 of Criminal Minds entitled Jones. I see what you did with the opening quote there, my friend. Jones. I still, I still have this feeling like, you know, we do these quotes separately, folks, and I, I, I have this feeling. I always thought me and AJ were so had so much in common that for sure by now we would have like picked the same quote, but it has not happened yet. And so... Uh, I just thought I'd share that little bit of backstage drama with you all. Boy, did you just jinx next week. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This episode this week was written by Andy Bushell and directed by Steve Schill, AJ. And it originally aired on February 28th, 2007. This week, we start with the previously on, which we don't do too much, so... I figure whatever they're showing must be something of importance to the episode. And I am also convinced that the producers of the show were as enamored with the beak as the rest of the world. (laughs) And they are determined to show him as much as possible, or he has worked out some kind of residual deal with them that included flashbacks and previous lease. I think they're just still trying to go, hey, 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 I know you haven't been watching the last two weeks, but did you watch the Super Bowl? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anyway, in case we forgot, Reed has been displaying possible drug addict behavior, and part of that caused some tension between him and Emily, who did call him out on it uh, before. So this week, we start out with a quick scene of the day in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina began to ravage New Orleans. Uh, We cut to a home where a man is talking with his son on the phone. The son is arguing with his dad that he's got to leave. The levees are going to fall. And the man who has an investigative chalkboard set up with crime scene photos, he doesn't want to leave. He believes he's close to cracking his case. And uh, the son, he's got some kind of letter that's going to help him. And the son is like, screw the letter. You know, right now they're uh, opening up the Superdome. I, I want you to meet me there. This guy is looking at a photo in his hand and he sees something in a magnifying glass that sparks his interest. And uh, as he starts to turn around, his house, this is when his house is hit by the storm. His windows blow in, a tree enters his house. Uh, (laughs) He is hurled to the floor. 
He's got a huge head wound. Doesn't look like he's going to make it. Uh, before he dies, he starts to uh, grab a piece of glass and starts carving a message into his wall. And I guess we're left to assume that he dies after that. So we get that quick little scene. Yeah, it's. I mean, it was very much like uh, the scene in Poltergeist where the tree smashes through the window and grabs grabs the kid and causes him to have a bloody nose. I, I don't know if I'm going to leave a message. Well, first of all, I mean, the, the, the tree death, probably one of the weirdest deaths we've seen on yes. this show. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, certainly, in a storm, trees flying at, at, at you know, ungodly MPH. I get it. It's just, this is a show where we expect, you know, stabbings and guillotines and, and trebuchets right. and all these complicated deaths. It's like, oh, it's, he turned around and the window broke. <laughs> Yeah, but would you would you would you go for a shard of glass to carve into the wall? Or would you just not write something with your own blood when you're already bleeding? Yeah, I'd probably try to grab my blood. I mean, wipe the blood from my face and and write on a on a surface. And we that. know we know it's a good medium. Rules. We we've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> now I also have to say. They do a better job after this scene, but I felt like, you know, they were going really hard for the New Orleans accents, the Louisiana accents in this show. And I feel like this one scene with the son on the phone, uh, he kind of missed the mark and he sounded more like he was one of S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders or <laughs> or, or someone from, uh, uh, I don't know, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. He just sounded like he was... He sounded like a New York Italian to me instead of uh, New Orleans Southern gem. Yeah, I mean, you, you, it's hard to con contextualize it to in, in the middle of of uh, <laughs> a session where they do the uh, the recording later on and just just have them talking into it, uh, playing to the the video of the scene. So it's a little less natural too. So I'll give them a pass on that. Besides, there was a storm going on. How could you really hear the accent over the storm? Oh, AJ, you know we like to focus in on things. <laughs> oh, please, yes. <laughs> so our next scene, we cut to the BAU office. JJ is telling the team that they've got a serial killer in New Orleans. He's killed three men so far, pre-Katrina. And up till now, the police believed that the killer had died in the storm. But now they have a fourth victim uh, that has turned up with the same MO, having his throat slashed. And they're pretty sure it's the same killer because the unsub sent a letter to the head detective on the case, William LaMontagne. And Guinean asks if Montaigne, LaMontagne has any leads, but JJ tells him that he actually died in the storm. But guess what? His uh, son is now heading up the case. They can't look at previous evidence from the other earlier crimes because the first three cases had all of their evidence wiped out by the storm. So all they're going to have to go on is the evidence from the fourth victim until he kills again. And we go to credits. That felt very natural that that, that would be a good place to cut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if they hadn't, I probably would have just started singing the, the theme song anyway, because this is a perfect moment. <laughs> it was exactly. Although. I still maintain Gideon should have the last pre-dramatic credit line, but I, I believe it was Hotch this time. But it is what it is. I can't complain too much. 
So uh, for our next scene, we see the BAU jet flying and Gideon is giving us our opening quote. Robert Kennedy once said, tragedy is a tool for the living to gain wisdom, not a guide by which to live. Eh, what do the Kennedys know about tragedy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Morgan sees Reed deep in thought and asks him what's up. And Reed was just remembering a friend of his from Vegas named Ethan, uh, who he thinks lives in New Orleans now. He was super competitive with this friend as they were growing up, spelling bees, academic contests, and the such. And uh, they were both going to join the Bureau. But after just one day at Quantico, his friend Ethan backed out. And Prentice says, you know, jokingly, oh, he must have not been able to take the heat. And... Reed completely ignores her joking manner and just coldly says, well, that's not really for us to judge, is it? And uh, Emily and Morgan notice the attitude. So there's a few little awkward stares for a moment. And uh, JJ breaks the tension by passing out newspaper articles on the current murders and the previous murders. And the, uh, as they've said, the killer killed three times and stopped for 18 months, then started killing again. So Gideon says to have Garcia check for any known offenders in the area. Maybe they've done some prison time that could account for that time break. And Reed says they may have had someone that had to relocate during Katrina, but now has moved back. The victimology is also all over the place. This guy's killed a mechanic, a real estate broker, a cook, and now a taxi driver. They range in ages from 22 to 45. They have nothing in common. The only thing... Uh, they have in common was being male and walking the French Quarter late at night. Yeah, I mean, just the the victimology is all over the place. We got a brain, a beauty, a jock, a rebel, a reckless. <laughs> <laughs> I used the village people last week. I had to go at Breakfast Club this week. What do you want? <laughs> it, it works. It works. Uh, so the only place they have to work on this case, since they have no case files, is to start at square one. And then we get a travel by photo to the crime scene. Although this was a modified travel by Kodak, as I like to call it, uh, because the body dissolves away because the body has been moved. So it's like body in the picture to the spot without the body. But they did it in this like funky dissolve. So it was, got, it was kind of, again, at least a play on the old trick. I like that they're keeping yeah. us uh, alert. They keep trying things. They're experimenting. So... Our team is there, and they arrive and meet our local detective, who we know who he is already. He's the son of our dead detective from the first scene. Uh, he he uh, is William Lamontagne Jr., and uh, he gives them the letter that the killer sent. He's sure it's from the same killer. It has a detailed account of what he did to the body. And then we cut to the latest body at the morgue, and Prentice and Reed are there talking to the coroner, who uh, points out, it looks like the victims were dissected. Emily can still smell the alcohol on the victim. And the coroner says, well, this is New Orleans. <laughs> and this coroner okay. has one of the thickest New Orleans accents yeah. we meet in this episode. Just, oh, you all got your body. You got surrounded by whatever organ would leave them intact. Yeah, all y'all. <laughs> yeah. The uh, victim has no defensive wounds. So Reed points out that this is likely a blitz attack. The cuts were methodical. The coroner is guessing he probably had some medical training 
the way he was able to intricately carve around every organ and leave each one intact. What's funny is I just said that. You didn't even know I just said it because I said it with such a thick accent. He got around every organ and leaving this bin to attack, y'all. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so no one has claimed, come to claim the body yet, AJ. The uh, coroner is going to box up his ashes and put him in storage. And it's a wonder that he has room still in storage with all of the bodies that he's seen during the last year and a half. I mean, look, it's, 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 this is the way you get current events or you know, real life and, and put a nice little timestamp on it. Because, you know, yeah, Katrina was a big, important thing. So, um, you know, to do anything in New Orleans and not at this point in in time and not say, hey, we're only 18 months out of Katrina. Maybe things aren't super all back to normal. It's responsible, actually. Mm -hmm. It worked. It worked. Uh, We're back at the crime scene now, and Morgan is saying it would be easy for this unsub to hide out in one of the surrounding alcoves, wait for the victim without being seen. And La Montaigne tells him that all four of the murders happened within this 10-block radius inside the French Quarter. Any given night, there could be thousands of people walking through there from the various bars. In fact, La Montaigne says tens of thousands of people. And uh, so he goes into, La Montaigne goes into talking about how when he first started out working, he was a cop in the quarter. And it was like being on the riot squad every night. And uh, after his shift on Sundays, his dad would be waiting for him and they'd drive up to Frankie and Johnny's for some po' boys. (laughs) Uh, They like to call it communing with uh, New Orleans. And And I I will say uh, demerits to the Netflix uh, (laughs) closed captioning for saying poor boys. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) He did not say poor boys. He said po' boys. (laughs) <laughs> yes, 100%. Um, <laughs> and uh, Gideon asks if his father told him anything else about the case that they should know. And Lamontaine says he tried to, but maybe you should see what I'm talking about for yourself. And so we cut to the wrecked remains of the elder Lamontaine's house and see what he has carved into the wall. The word Jones. Ding, 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 ding. Episode title. Episode title. Episode title. M- multiple times in this episode. So yes. for once, I'm going to say, yeah, that's, that's a good title for this episode. <laughs> yeah, it works. Jones makes sense. Uh, it doesn't mean anything. The word doesn't mean anything or the name doesn't mean anything to La Montaigne. Uh, he's checked against his databases, but he didn't find anything that seemed to relate to this case. And J.J. points out that in this man's final moments, it was the most important thing that he wanted to say. La Montaigne is is feeling nostalgic being in that house. He's saying he learned how to play the drums there. He grew up with two dogs in that house. And now all it is is the word Jones carved into the wall. Well, Morgan says his his dad trusted him to figure this out. La Montaigne knows that and he's gone over it a thousand times, but he just can't figure it out. JJ asks if he's okay, and he says, yeah, he just doesn't want to disappoint his dad. I don't want to disappoint my dad, my papa. (laughs) Yes. And uh, I might also point out that between the introduction of JJ and La Montaigne and in this scene, it seems like maybe they have a little chemistry going on. I think you could pick up on it pretty early. 
Oh, uh, certainly, uh, certainly going from uh, Bill Lamonte toward <laughs> towards JJ. Yeah. No doubt, he's looking at. Ah, oh, I didn't know. You're just not what I expected you to be looking like, y'all. Now, ga 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 ga. I'm surprised he didn't just go into. I had two dogs in this house. I had a stack of girly magazines when I would take care of business over there that I wish were here right now. <laughs> Oh, boy. So next we cut to the police station, and uh, Emily walks in as Hotch is looking at a big old PowerPoint on the screen of the letter from the unsub, and he reads it out loud. I'm back with a vengeance. I wanted you to know. The last guy made it easy being out so late, stumbling home drunk. I enjoyed slicing around his organs. I thought about sending you one. He was asking to be ripped, don't you think, boss? Yours truly. And I, for one, am glad the letter writer remembered to include their complimentary clothes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, points for uh, following the <laughs> template we learned in like third and fourth grade. <laughs> yes. Uh, as Hotch uh, finished reading the letter, we see a quick shot of a guy drunkenly making his way out of a French Quarter bar. And we see shots of this guy as the team discusses the case. Reed makes a connection. He points out that except for the fact that this killer's victims were men, we have the same M.O. as a series of crimes committed about 100 years ago, A.J., in London. Yes, this is reminiscent of the Jack the Ripper case. What was the tip-off, Reed? The fact that the the letter said he needed some ripping? <laughs> Quite possibly. I mean, it, it, you know, the letter wasn't shy about it. <laughs> yeah, good point. Very good point. I'm it wasn't like, the, sometimes read the breakthrough he usually had. Yeah, sometimes uh, read is coming like, oh, I recall this thing I read once seventeen years ago on page twenty-three of this book. Like, no, this is like, oh yeah, it's like Jack the Ripper. <laughs> yes. All four of the victims so far were found with their throats slashed. And all the murders were perpetrated in semi-public places after dark. And the investigators were taunted with letters addressed to the boss. This unsub wants them to think he's the modern-day version of Jack the Ripper, and he's loose in New Orleans, and we cut to a break. We come back from our break, and we are at yet another crime scene with another victim, and we see a quick on the scene questioning of two of the men who were out with the victim that night. Uh, and they're just there to say that they didn't get into any fights or anything. They were just out having fun, roaming around, bar hopping. The victim had paid his tab and was on his way to meet them at another bar. And as far as they know, he didn't hook up with anybody. He was striking out just like them. I mean, for, uh, for a bunch of guys whose buddy has just been killed <laughs> and his, and his yeah. body is still lying there on the ground being investigated... <laughs> They seem really calm. <laughs> yeah, very nonchalant, kind of, almost. I oh, yeah. Oh, oh, Jimmy? Oh, yeah, Jimmy. Uh, well, he struck out the ladies all the time. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. So they get sent away, and La Montaigne says it's getting hard to keep up with this guy. And Emily says if he's mimicking Jack the Ripper, that's the point. And Gideon asks La Montaigne to gather his men so they can give them the profile of who they're up against. We cut to the police station for our profile scene. This guy is a friendly type between 30 and 35. He allures with charm and kills with rage. 
He murders men to reclaim his power. He suffers from low self-esteem, but covers it well. He dresses impeccably to feed his facade. And as Emily goes into the next little bit, we see her following an unsub. But instead of the modern one that they're currently chasing, it appears now that she's following Jack the Ripper in Victorian London. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, they, 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 were, they were next door to, uh, to the Angel set. <laughs> I mean, they just filmed a flashback <laughs> with Darla and Angel and Spike. And said, hey, can we borrow your set for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, she says Jack the Ripper was an impetuous lust murderer, whereas this offender seems to be organized and calculating and might stalk his victims for days before the actual kill. Uh, all of a sudden, Gideon is there in Victorian London with her. <laughs> and uh, he says they believe that the killer identifies with Jack the Ripper because he's lost his own identity. Um, they say maybe through years of child abuse or some catastrophic event. Uh, their killer may hold a position of authority at his work, and since he's had medical training, they should consider EMTs, doctors, and veterinarians. Gideon says, be careful out there. For this guy, the French Quarter is a hunting ground, and he's proved that he knows the terrain. I mean, look, you know, outside of the fact we'll eventually find out that they're completely wrong about almost everything <laughs> what they're saying here. I'm surprised that Gideon didn't say, also, he might be a time traveler. <laughs> that's the only thing yes. that was missing from this this like uh so you've described jack the ripper <laughs> so now we cut to see a from the behind shot of a guy walking in an alley spooky music plays he hears a noise of a bottle or something following behind him he turns around to see what it is but doesn't see anything so he turns around and continue on his walk and I, I do recognize this actor, by the way. If you ever watched Entourage, he played the crazy director Billy Walsh on the show Entourage for many episodes. Um, anyway, this actor rounds the corner and he bumps into someone. <gasps> it's scary. No, it's Reed. Oh, it's and, scary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the show didn't fake me out in terms of the dark, the uh, the scary music and the noises, because they've already said our killer kills at night, and this was in broad daylight, so <laughs> I just didn't feel as nervous. And yes, this is Reed's friend Ethan, who he has uh, decided to meet up with. And then let's be clear, he's not stalking him. They they agreed to meet at this bar right. right right up ahead. So he just you know, kind of snuck and played a little joke on him, but it's not like he's been stalking him around the city. Right. He just gave, gave him a little scare. Wee wee. Yay. <laughs> uh, so they go off to uh, have their drink. We cut back to the station and Prentice receives a call from Garcia. And after all of our usual Garcia wackiness, it turns out that she's calling to let them know she found a case with the same M.O. It occurred in Galveston, Texas from, from four months before. And the similar part was that the victim's kidney was missing, just like in a Jack the Ripper case. So Prentice tells this to Gideon, who notes that many of the evacuees from Katrina relocated there to Galveston, Texas. So he wants Reed, Morgan, and her to fly out to Texas that night to investigate more. It seems, it seems a bit much to send three people when you think about it, but uh, mm -hmm. okay, sure. 
<laughs> so we cut back to Reed and Ethan at the bar. And we see Reed getting a call, looks at the phone, sees it's from Prentice, and then he just doesn't bother to answer it. Ethan knows why Reed calls him, tells him to go ahead and ask the question. So Reed does. He says, why did you quit after just one day? And Ethan says, well, I'm sure you've considered the evidence and analyzed it. Why do you think I quit? And Reed says, well, you were battling your own demons and didn't have time to analyze someone else's. Ethan says that's not bad. In those days, he did prefer Jack Daniels to Jeff Dahmer. But they can both weigh on your soul eventually. He should have said Jack Daniels to, to Jack the Ripper. He really should have. Yeah. <laughs> Especially because they they don't do a great job of doing it, but they don't not do it and setting him up as potentially the unsub. So. <laughs> I, yeah. say, I don't say Jack the Ripper, and therefore we can, you know, at least, oh, maybe it is him. Right. Reed happens to ignore another call from Emily, and then he asks Ethan if he regrets his choice. And Ethan says, uh, well, his music makes him happy, and it doesn't take a profiler to see that Reed is not happy. Reed is like, it's not easy, and I don't think you'd believe some of the things that I've seen and Ethan points out, Reed looks like hell, and he's a jazz musician in New Orleans. He knows when someone is not well. And this may be the one time he can tell Reed something that Reed doesn't already know. So he's sort of caught on to Reed's mannerisms and the fact that something's going on with Reed. And he says, whatever you're taking might help you forget, but it won't make it go away. And if I can tell that something's going on, you know, you're surrounded by some of the best minds in the world. And if you don't think that they can notice, well, for a genius, that that's just dumb. Yeah, although I'm going to say, uh, except for him saying that, is Reed really exhibiting any, uh, oh, I'm on, I, I've been taking these drugs constantly, or even I've been drinking heavily, like... He's being a jerk, <laughs> but I mean, he, yeah, he might look a little, a little tired or something, but yeah, there's nothing like overt. None of the trembling that we've seen from him in past episodes yeah, I, uh, I just, to me. I just think that they didn't ever do a good job with this. Uh, you know, if he's an addict, then let's, let's have him go down that road. Um, if he's just suffering from PTSD, then have him go down that road. But they kind of want to just say, oh, there's something wrong with Reed. Yeah. But they, they don't put a label on it. And I think that's just very silly. Next, we cut to Morgan arriving on the jet. He uh, looks around and asks Prentice where Reed is. She says, well, she thought he was with Morgan. She's tried calling him four times. Can't get an answer. What should they do? And Morgan's like, we've got a one option. Wheels up. <laughs> Morgan's just ready to go. <laughs> we got to get out of here. Look, look. I want to get back in time for tonight to party in New Orleans. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> we uh, next cut to see JJ and La Montaigne at a bar. She's trying to work and he's having a beer while they're working, which she does note. And he says, uh, yeah, it's a cultural thing. And uh, he asks her where she's from. She says Pennsylvania. And he says he takes it that folks are a little rigid from there about the rules. But if it makes her feel better, he pushes his beer away and says they'll do it Pennsylvania style tonight. <laughs> <laughs> she tries to put his mind at ease about the case. 
and he asks her why she isn't married. <laughs> She's like, uh, that involves the case how? And he says, oh, it doesn't. He's just flirting. <laughs> it doesn't. It don't. I'm just flirting. <laughs> <laughs> this is a man from West Virginia trying to do a New Orleans accent. Yeah. Uh, he, he's really just doing a West Virginia accent and just talking a little slower. <laughs> but <laughs> and it's not. I'm just flirting. <laughs> he tells her, he, you know, he knows it's unprofessional. She doesn't have to answer. All of a sudden, a waitress comes up and gives him a drink and says, it's compliments of that woman in the blue top. And they look down at her, see her said woman at the end of the bar uh, smiling at them. And JJ's like, wow, that's pretty bold. And La Montaigne is like, oh, you jealous, Cherry. <laughs> um, and uh, JJ denies it. And he says she's a bad liar. He says she hasn't had much practice. I'm assuming he means with flirting and whatnot. And uh, JJ says, hey, it's a culture thing. It's a culture thing. You wouldn't catch the Scranton girls giving drinks to strangers in bars. <laughs> <laughs> we next cut to Galveston, Texas. Emily and Derek are talking to the Galveston victim's fiance, who confirms that he was out bar hopping with his friends the night he was killed. Uh, she knew everybody that was in his group. They all grew up together. They're all like family. So she doesn't think it was anybody he he could have been with. But they might have indeed met up with someone when they were out. They were a rowdy group. They would party with anybody. Uh, afterwards, we see in the car, Prentice saying to Morgan that each of the last two victims was traveling in a group, drinking, bar hopping, and they were around public arenas. How could the friends not see anything happen? And Morgan says, it's like when a lion preys on an antelope. And Prentice is like, uh, what? <laughs> you lost me. And uh, he tells her... That's because she's never been the antelope. <laughs> she's again lost. And he explains, look, the antelope travels in packs and the lion just sits and waits for one of the antelope to break free. And when it's alone, completely unprotected, that's when the lioness strikes. And that's when she makes her move. And Prentice is like, her move? And Morgan says, only one thing is going to make a straight man leave his friends on a guy's night out. And it'll make him leave every time. That's going to the bathroom. No. Uh, <laughs> the only temptation that's going to lure these men away from each other, uh, Prentice figure, finishes the sentence for him, is a woman. So Morgan calls JJ to tell her that they're looking for a woman. JJ hangs up. La Matane is like, what's going on? Says that they're, She says they're looking for a woman. And they look around the bar and the camera quickly cuts between several women at the bar that, of course, have nothing to do with it. But they're women. They're women. <laughs> we, 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 yeah. <laughs> cut to a break. I mean, look, uh, first of all, I'm going to contradict myself with these two points here. But Emily is, is, is very smart and picks things up very quickly. We've known that from the moment we met her when, you know, she she basically wows Hotch to the point where he can't say no to having her get the job he did, never gave her in the first place. <laughs> and, and he's and she's going to get the lion antelope analogy. She, she, it's, it's not that difficult an analogy. I know the audience needs to ex explain, but it's like, it's like lion and antelope. I don't, what? I don't follow. Well, you know, there's like a herd. No, I don't, please. I, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> like, she was so confused, but I'm surprised at the end, like, she? I don't understand. What do you mean by she? 
<laughs> so, but at the same time, I'm then going to yell at her for saying one of the things that, as an editor, uh, I, I cannot stand when people write. It's not each of the last two victims. It's both of the last two victims. <laughs> each implies <laughs> three or more. But nevertheless, <laughs> gram- grammatic... Uh, Quirks aside, come on, Emily's not that stupid to not get that. It's not a read analogy where you're just like, what, Reed? What are you talking about? It made sense. It was fine. So uh, after we come back from our break, we're at the police station and JJ wants La Montaigne to set up a press conference to let people know that they're looking for a woman. He doesn't really want to go to the media with this. He explains that tourists are just starting to come back to the city. The city is rebuilding. Last thing I want to do is create mass hysteria. Plus, we'd be playing right into this woman's hands. And JJ is like, "Uh, look, I don't want to have to go over your head. Meaning that she completely will go over his head. (laughs) Look, Uh, I'm going to do a press conference. I just wanted you to say it was your idea. (laughs) Right, exactly. He says, well, he gets that and he'll set up the press conference. (laughs) Morgan and Prentice come back in and Reed is like, oh, hey, you guys are back from Galveston. <laughs> and like, uh, yeah, weren't you supposed to be on that plane, my brother? They are like, where were you? And Reed is like, I already told you I was out with a friend. Prentice says she called him four times. He says, yeah, he didn't have reception and he didn't get her message until late. Emily clearly does not believe him. Uh, Reed just goes, you know, what what's going on? And Morgan tells them that their unsub is a woman. Hotch comes in and tells them that they just found another body in the quarter. And, and Reed is saved by the body. <laughs> saved by the body, yes. <laughs> we uh, cut to the new crime scene. They're looking at the body. Again, the throat is cut. This body was disemboweled. Reeks of booze. Uh, The different thing this time is that the earlobe was cut off and Reed says, "Okay, she's sticking with the Ripper's paradigm. In one letter, Jack Jack the Ripper promised to cut the earlobe off of his next victim. And he did. And uh, it was the only day that he happened to kill twice. So they figure out that she's going to kill again by the end of the day. So now we have sort of a timeline established, AJ. Yeah, timeline, and again, it's our ticking clock. Oh, there's going to be another murder by the end of the day. Now we got to solve this faster. Ticking clock achieved. It's just weird to me because at first it's like, Reed's like, oh, this is similar to Jack the Ripper. And, you know, now it's like, oh, well, clearly this is someone who really has studied Jack the Ripper and is going beat by beat and matching kill by kill. If he had thought that earlier, then why didn't he say, we should look for a case with a kidney, which they, which Garcia found, of all people. Or, right. con- conversely, when they found the kidney, why didn't that tick off? Oh, well, there there was a kidney case, and that was number four, and this is number six, and he's following the pattern. Like, I, it's just kind of weird. Maybe Reed's just off his game because he's having these other issues, that, and that's fine. <laughs> but, again, you can write that. I should have seen that, or something. Like, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yep. So uh, then they take a moment to go over the types of female serial killers, uh, of which there are two basic types. You have your Santa Santa Carmes model, which is cold, calculating, preying on men for money, taking the time to build relationships. Uh, And Reed says it's more likely they're dealing with the Eileen Wernos type. 
which is uh, motivated by paranoia and fear and lures men with sex. And Gideon says, our unsub is organized and follows a routine. Uh, she meets men in a bar, flirts with them over drinks, suggests that they consummate the evening in an alley. And Morgan says, well, then they need to be in those streets. Uh, La-, La Montaigne walks up and he has a new letter from the killer, which Emily reads out loud. Dear boss, by now I have rid the world of one more. So many men, so little time. I hope you don't mind the mess. They make it so easy that I just can't help myself. Yours truly. So While many she reads men, this, <laughs> so little time. Yes. How can I lose? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't help myself. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, I should say that while Emily was reading this letter, we're cutting to some shots of a woman whose face we never see, but she's putting on her red lipstick and putting on her sexy red dress, getting ready to go out for a night on the town, or in this case, murder. Murder. <laughs> or as they say in the UK, murder. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you ever watch UK crime uh, shows? Like, There's been a murder. <laughs> oh, what are we getting into here, AJ? <laughs> of course, uh, but Mama Tame would say, I guarantee you're going to be a murder for not out. And, uh, and I would look at you and go, What did he just say? Uh, he said, We murder. cut to later. <laughs> We cut to later and we see what's supposed to be a typical New Orleans party type crowd out in the quote unquote French Quarter streets. I I don't feel like this was necessarily shot on location in New Orleans. Maybe it's just me. It didn't really look like it to me. No, I'm with you. It was more just a party, party set. <laughs> yeah. La Montaigne is walking with JJ. So we focus on them for a moment and he says... So we're looking for a woman who will approach men and is comfortable being the aggressor. And JJ says she's also guessing that she's quite attractive in order to be able to lure men away. Then we cut to Morgan and Reed, and they're looking around, and they see that most of the women are in groups, so they decide they need to keep their eyes open for someone that's on their own. We cut to Gideon and Prentice to check what they're up to, and Gideon is repeating... The so many men, so little timeline, and says it's like she's on a quest to wipe out the race. And Emily says, or perhaps the father who molested her. Uh, some people think that Jack the Ripper mutilated women after his mother sexually abused him for years. And Gideon says, for someone to be so enraged, this unsub seems oddly apologetic for leaving a bloody crime scene. And why is that? Prentice says maybe that's uh, what La Montaigne figured out right before he died. We cut back to JJ and the younger La Montaigne, and she's saying how these guys made it easy and she wouldn't follow a stranger into an alley no matter how wasted she was. And La Montaigne says, yeah, but you're not a man. Testosterone will follow a woman to Thailand barefoot. <laughs> it's just a fact. I like- um, thought that was... Interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting, uh, cult, it's a colorful turn of phrase. 
I mean, I mean, I follow you to Thailand barefoot, one arm tied behind my back. You're tall, drink of water, just a ball, you want to go in this alleyway and check something? I mean, uh, uh, this has nothing to do with the case. It's a uh, backtrack, backtrack, backtrack. <laughs> unprofessional, unprofessional, unprofessional. <laughs> uh, we cut to Gideon, uh, who is asking Emily if she gave the new letter for to read for him to work on. And she sort of stammers at this, doesn't want to answer. And Gideon's like, what is it? And when she doesn't say, he says, are you thinking that I'm not aware something's going on with Reed? So Gideon is fully aware, just like uh, Ethan uh, predicted. And uh, then we cut to Morgan and he's talking to Reed and asking him why he missed the flight to Texas. And Reed says, I already told you. And Morgan's like, yeah, right. But anytime you want to give me the truth, you know. (laughs) Here I am. And at that moment, Reed conveniently spots a potential suspect, says dark curls at three o'clock. And we then cut to see a group of guys getting approached. And one sort of does a fake bump into a woman. And he says, oh, what can he do to say he's sorry? And she says, well, how about a drink? And his buddies give him the eye like, aha, good job. And he walks off with her. And we see Reed and Morgan following a girl who is approaching a guy in an alley, but it's a fake out because they're friends and she's just returning the wallet he dropped. And it wasn't the guy we just saw before bumping into the girl. So Morgan and Reed were looking at the wrong Yeah, I mean, they person. set this up, uh, you know, like, oh, it's someone in a red dress. Look, there's a woman in the red dress. That must be the unsub. Let's go after her. Hey, you goofball, you dropped your wallet. <laughs> goofball. She calls him a goof. Who talks like that? Hey, you big goofball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think just writers talk like that. <laughs> hey, dumbass, you left your wallet any- back there. <laughs> that I can understand. Hey, you big silly. Come here, you big, you big silly. <laughs> let me give you some noogies, you big silly. Here's your wallet. Don't let it happen again. Stop. Stop being such a jester, you goofball. <laughs> uh, oh, heavens to Megatroid! <laughs> yes, Snaggle, Snagglepuss has, has given given him back his wallet. Um, we cut back to the guy who did go with our unsub, and uh, he's asking her where her friends are tonight. And she says she didn't bring in any. They get in the way. And he smiles at that and says, I like that. Most girls don't go anywhere alone. And she puts her head to his ear. We don't see her face yet. And she says, I'm not like most girls. And uh, AJ, for a quick second here, just a spot second, and I'm sure this was only me, but she sounded for a moment like L. And I thought, wouldn't that be hilarious? <laughs> hilarious <laughs> if L was our killer. That would have been an awesome callback. Absolutely. I mean... <laughs> And like, gee, I wonder what it was that set her off. Well, I, think, I think we might know. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, obviously that wasn't the case. It uh, wouldn't no, have made sense timeline here. Timeline wouldn't have worked either, but yeah, that would be a great. Oh, so absolutely. I'm all for that kind of uh, uh, surprise. <laughs> so now we uh, cut to the team and they've gathered together in, in the uh, street area and they're Realizing that they have nothing, and since the day is almost over, they've probably completely run out of time. We cut to another couple in an alley making out. It's yet another fake out, because this isn't our couple either. 
but they the guy is realizing that the woman's hair is wet and she realizes she's leaning against a bloody door and she looks down and starts screaming because they see our body of our guy that we know was with the unsub he's there with his throat cut yeah douche bro uh, deserved it though i mean i'm sorry uh <laughs> if your idea of uh flirting with a woman is bashing into her going oh i'm sorry how can i make it empty <laughs> while you're wearing a baseball cap and one of those stupid softball shirts with with the varsity sleeves <laughs> yes. like dude no no and just no <laughs> So uh, after a break, we come back. It's the next day, and we're at this new crime scene. And La Montaigne is there, and he's saying she's mocking us. And Prentice says, uh, and she's been true to her word. Uh, Reed asks for some tweezers because he sees that there's a note in the victim's mouth that I'm kind of surprised that they're just figuring out at this point. It seems like they would have got that earlier. Can can, can I borrow some tweezers? What for? That giant piece of paper that's in his mouth. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yeah, it seemed a little odd that they were just noticing it the next day. Uh, And uh, so they ask what it is. Of course, it's the latest note from Killer. It's addressed still to the uh, elder La Montaigne, and Gideon reads it. Dear boss, he wanted it What with that sharp tongue and vulgar hand. I thought you'd like to know that another will soon get what he deserves. Yours truly. And Reed remarks how weird it is because normally offenders write letters to be heard. This unsub isn't writing to brag, only to explain why she did it. They discuss that it's possible the woman considers herself a vigilante and that the men she's killing maybe deserve to die. Or maybe she's contacting La Montaigne's father, not because he was the lead detective, but because she believes that he would understand. And La Montaigne says, you think that means maybe he knew her somehow? And they ask him if he can think of a woman in his dad's life and where, which where he maybe helped her through a tough time. Maybe like a prostitute that he helped get off the street. La Montaigne says he hadn't dealt with a prostitute since he worked sex crimes. Maybe their unsub is mirroring a man who raped her. So Gideon asks about La Montaigne's files from when he worked with sex crimes. But La Montaigne Jr. says they don't have his sex crime files. They were also wiped out by the storm. JJ asks him if his dad had a partner and... Yes, his partner was shooting guard for Nixon Cavaliers, J.R. Smith. Uh, no, uh, not the shooting guard, but was named J.R. Smith, and they called him Smitty. And- wow, there's a stretch for, <laughs> for nickname. Wait. No, I, I'm really surprised they didn't just hear him go, wait a second, we called Smith Smitty. Oh, my God, there was this woman, Joan. They called her Jonesy. (laughs) It was her the whole time. Uh, Yes. But uh, anyway, Smitty had some sort of falling out with the elder La Montaigne, and they hadn't even talked since he left the sex crimes unit. But he doesn't mind mind calling him if it helps them to solve the case. At this moment, La Montaigne notices something, and he 
asks JJ if he can borrow her hand, I suppose, because it's still gloved. But it was still a, just a weird moment where he grabs JJ's hand and uses it to pull uh, the victim's hand out so he can see it clearer. And uh, But that's what happens. <laughs> and, uh, so they do, and he recognizes there's a stamp on the hand from a bar, uh, bar called uh, the Mancherie. And uh, La Montaigne realizes that nine years ago, the name of that bar was the Jones Bar. Gideon says, bingo! <laughs> uh, get Garcia on the horn. Yeah, I, I, I think this was a nice payoff because when they discover the first body, they do take a shot quickly of the hand. You see the hand stamp and, you know, since they don't mention it, you figure, well, that doesn't mean anything. But indeed, the hand stamp was there. So it was a nice consistency of the writing there. But it just took them to actually notice the hand uh, in this new context. And bingo! I think it's pretty damn sad that Smitty didn't even go to La Montaigne Sr.'s funeral. Yeah. As... As Bill's like, yeah, I didn't come out at a funeral. <laughs> <laughs> Can I borrow your hand for a second? My hand's at the shop. I need to borrow yours. Don't worry, I'll give it back. Yeah, it's sad, but uh, when we meet Smitty in a few moments, we'll discover we don't... Oh, it's preferred. Yeah, yeah we, it's we're preferred. glad he didn't go. <laughs> yeah. But before that, we have JJ calling Garcia... Asking if she can find out any, if there are any news reports about a rape at a bar called Jones. Garcia clickety clacks, but there's nothing that she can find. So JJ says, can she cross-reference William LaMontagne and Jones Bar? And Garcia does get a hit. Apparently LaMontagne answered a disturbance at that bar in 1998 during Mardi Gras. JJ says uh, that Garcia is the best ever and Garcia tells her, that she's the most perceptive. You are so right, OJJ. I am the best of <laughs> Did you forget it? <laughs> Clickety-clack sign off. <laughs> <laughs> so next, our team meets up with Smitty in a bar. He's not too happy to see the younger La Montaigne and is giving him, throwing a lot of shade his way and actually thinks he's making some kind of weird joke when he asks him about the night nine years ago when they answered a call in this bar. And he realizes that La Montaigne Jr. doesn't even know what re what really went down. He says, you know, your dad tried to bring me up on sanctions after that night. They, they investigated a girl who claimed she was raped during Mardi Gras in that bar. He didn't see it. He thought she was asking for it. I mean, they're showing a scene that's straight up out of the accused for this. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Like, uh, but anyway, Smitty didn't believe this girl, but La Montaigne was trying to uh, get him sanctioned for it. But it turns out that the brass backed up Smitty and transferred La Montaigne out of the unit just to shut him up. When they ask him to go over the story, he says, well, the girl went upstairs with a guy and his friend. The girl was a tease looking for a good time. I mean, she was wearing so many beads, AJ. That's a clear sign. <laughs> well, I mean, you only, you can only get beads for flashing. It's the only way you could possibly get beads. <laughs> and therefore, she must have been flashing uh, all day long to get that many beads. And when you flash, that means you want to be raped. I mean, clearly. Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. Thank goodness they portrayed this guy as the asshole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he wound up telling this girl it was a waste of time pressing charges. 
he knew one of the boys that was accused, and he's a good kid. Uh, he didn't need the stink of that accusation. <laughs> Gideon says, so you protected the rapist, basically. <laughs> and <laughs> Smitty says, well, that was the problem between him and La Montaigne. Uh, as far as he was concerned, no such ra- rape ever took place. And he asks them why they're bringing all this up. They tell him that the serial killer that is currently cutting up men in the quarter was his victim. Smitty doesn't even remember what her name was. Says it was nine years ago. But they bet he could remember the name of the good kid that raped her. And sadly, that's that's true. Because we next cut to Emily and JJ interrogating a Mr. Thibodeau about the incident at the Jones Bar. Mr. Thibodeau says he doesn't know what they're talking about. And they tell him, oh, it was Mardi Gras. And he says, well, he must have been drinking. He doesn't remember a thing. They're like, look, we just need a name, okay? We understand this is not, this is already, the statute of limitations is already over. We know, just give us the name, dude. You don't have to play the game, basically. And uh, Emily says, yeah, someone accuses me of rape. I'm going to remember the name. He's like, what well, can I tell you, Cher? And uh, I, I guess she didn't make that good of an impression. And Emily's like, unlike yourself right now. Um, and he says he's guessing if someone did do something to that girl at night, she was probably asking for it. Maybe she even liked it. And we cut to the rest of the team watching from outside. La Montaigne says this guy's not giving up anything. And... Uh, Hotch asks Reed, uh, after the double murder, what was the Ripper's next move? Reed says he mutilated and dismembered Mary Kelly in her one-room flat until she was unrecognizable, and it's believed to be his most vicious kill of all. And Hotch says, yeah, because he had his privacy. And Morgan says, yeah, the time, and he had the time to torture his victim before killing her. Maybe they're not too late. Cut back to JJ, who is showing Thibodeau pictures of the victims saying that she murdered these men and she's guessing that it's just a matter of time before she circles back around to the person that she really wants to kill. And Prentice says, well, does she make an impression um, impression now? And Thibodeau indeed looks a bit worried at this point. And I do like the nice little like, cut to Garcia. What was her name? Sarah Danlin. Yeah. Okay. We got the name. Clickety clack. Yeah. <laughs> We know that that's what the whole process was. We just need to see Garcia Garcia saying, Sarah Danlin. Uh, She also gives them an address. Looks like this woman was a med student at Tulane, but she dropped out. And JJ says, let me guess, February 1998. Garcia confirms that. So JJ hangs up and tells Hachi, yep, they got her. We cut to our unsub. She's making out hot and heavy with some guy. And the guy says, oh, I'm John, by the way. And she pushes him to the bed and says to John, take off your clothes. He's like, yes, ma'am. He starts to comply as we head to another break. We come back from break. The BAU and SWAT team are swarming Sarah Danlin's house. They start pounding on the door saying, Sarah Danlin, FBI. We cut to Sarah and John and she's tying his hands to the bedposts. And he says, "Ooh, the things I'm going to do to you. And she's like, me first, which was a, <laughs> which was fun. Uh, we cut back to the team clearing out Sarah's house. They realize she's not there. 
And Reed says, you know, some Ripperologists believe that Mary Kelly was actually killed in a flat that Jack the Ripper rented for the night. So they decide to have Garcia check her credit cards, see if maybe they can trace a room to it. We cut to Sarah and this latest guy, John, and he is starting to perhaps figure out that things might not be what he particularly planned on. (laughs) Uh, as she cuts his chest with a knife. And he was like, "Uh, what's that? You're crazy. And she says he never did explain those things that he could do to her. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me just say, even if you're correct, and it does seem that she, he, he, he's correct here, and the person who has tied you up, I mean, voluntarily, of course, but tied him up to the bedpost, has now got a knife and is stabbing you, Maybe you don't say, you're crazy. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what you want to lead with, probably. Uh, Like, why are you doing this? I'm just a nice guy. I have a family. (laughs) Yeah. We cut back to Sarah's place and Hotch has spotted the souvenirs, all the flyers and associated merchandise from the Mont Cherie bar in the French Quarter, formerly known as the Jones Bar. And they again point out that she's trolling for victims in the place where it all began. They think that maybe the rape isn't the whole story. Maybe she has a whole history of sexual abuse that she's enraged about. And by taking on the Ripper persona, she's trying to kill something within herself. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Garcia calls them to let them know that one of Sarah's credit cards has indeed been charged an hour ago at the Royal Ruby Inn. And La Montaigne says, oh, that's two blocks from there. And they take oh, off. Oh, that, that is that is two blocks from this place where we're standing right now. That two blocks can go right there by walking over there. <laughs> uh, we cut to the motel room. And Sarah is there straddling John. And at this point, he knows uh, he needs to be pleading for his life. And that's what he's doing. <laughs> and just as it looks like Sarah is going to go in for the kill, our team kicks in the door. They tell her to drop her weapon. She looks at them, and it's almost like she wants them to shoot her. She asks them even, what are they waiting for? And they tell her they don't want to shoot her. And she says, "Uh, it must be a shame to waste. It would be a shame to waste this. And she looks at Morgan and asks him if he wants it too. And he says, what I want is for you to put that knife down (laughs) Uh, in a Morgan-like manner. She doesn't look like she's going to. She just says, men. La Montaigne uh, decides to to chip in here, says, Sarah, my name's William La Montaigne Jr. You knew my daddy? And she pauses and she says, yeah. And La Montaigne says, you trusted him, so trust me. And she asks where he is. And he tells her that the storm took him. And she has a tear. She looks distraught at this news. He says, come on, it's over. Let go of the knife. And finally, after a moment, she starts to cry. She collapses into La Montaigne's arms, and the rest of the team lower their weapons. We cut to outside. Uh, John is still alive, and he's being brought to the ambulance, but he's going to be all right. J.J. walks up to La Montaigne, lets him know that, and she also tells him she heard what he did in there and that his dad would be proud of him. And he says he spent all his time focused on closing this case for him, Now that it's over, instead of feeling happy, he just feels lost. JJ says, well, that's because you got to move on. 
I'm proud of my man because he he says, and now you're leaving. How will I ever survive a woman like you going so far away? So even in his feeling lost, he realizes that there's some flirt game to still be played. Hey, shoot your shot. Shoot your shot. She gives him her card and says, despite what you may have heard, cell phones can be very good for your health. Uh, Okay, JJ. That doesn't seem very Pennsylvania of you. You go, girl. (laughs) Hey, it's a cultural thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I'm wondering at this point if I've missed out on my prediction of JJ's, one of her boyfriends, being an athlete. I'm thinking maybe it's a cop. Who knows? We'll see if this goes any further. Who knows if we'll ever see any of these characters ever again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um... (laughs) We'll see. You you know how this happens. Have we seen have we seen uh, Lila? <laughs> was that her name? Yeah. Do, do we even know that's her name? <laughs> I, I, it was so long ago. I, I yeah, you're right. The one I'm really concerned about is Hotch's brother. That seems like he would have been important and in New York when we last visited New York. But hey, all these important people we have yet to see again. <laughs> anyway, we cut to Reed, and he's at a jazz club. He's listening to Ethan play the piano, a lovely little jazz piece. Uh, Gideon comes in, sits right next to to Reed, and Reed asks him how he found him. And Gideon says, well, he's not all that hard to profile. And Gideon listens to the music for a moment, says that Reed's friend is good. And Reed looks at him and admits that he missed the plane on purpose. And Gideon says he knows. Reed says he's been struggling And Gideon says, anyone who's been through what you've been through would struggle. And Reed says, this is all he was groomed for. He's never considered any other option. Gideon says, it sounds like you're questioning whether or not you're strong enough to be here. And Reed says, yeah. And Gideon says, look, I've been playing at this job in one way or another for almost 30 years. I've felt lost. I've felt great. I've felt scared. I felt sick. I felt insane. I don't know. I guess the day this job stops stops gnawing at your soul and your hands stop feeling cold, maybe that's when it's time to leave. And Reed says, I guess I needed to just try and figure out if I could step away from this job. Gideon says, and? And Reed says, "Uh, I'll never miss another plane again. They listen to the jazz and that's the end of the episode. Mm. Interesting conversation there. It's almost as if Reed uh, has not had any problems other than a little PTSD. And uh, all it takes is a little mind willpower and you can be just fine and decide to be okay. Uh, yep. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe it takes a little bit longer than that. But it does seem like they're like, and I'll never do it again. Yeah. <laughs> it, it felt like they were closing this storyline for good at this point. It, yep. It did feel that way. We shall see, though, as you say. Well, uh, AJ, that was our episode. So let's do what we usually do. We uh, ask ourselves an important question Do we think the BAU team? won this episode. Uh, yeah, it's uh, clear that, uh, I mean, they solved the case fairly quickly, and uh, they 
captured the unsub without having to kill the unsub, because in a way the unsub was really a victim. Uh, that's, that's a about as positive results you, you can get. And the fact that they were operating with no previous case evidence put them at a handicap to begin with. So I have to declare this a W. <laughs> I do declare. All right. Nice. We have another win for the team. That will bring their record up a little bit. Do we think they're making the playoffs this year at this point or still too early to tell? Uh, well, you know, it's still a little too early to tell. I mean, they are 9-4-4. Four, and four. Uh, we, we got a couple of uh, cases still to go, so <laughs> we'll see. I, I think they'll, they'll certainly be around the 500 mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it looks like it. So why don't we do the next thing we usually do, which is every week after we recap the show, we like to have a little quiz that has perhaps been inspired by the episode. AJ, you are the quiz master. Why don't you take it away? Yes, the quiz master of 73 whooping cough lane. Ken over! No. Uh, yeah, I like the trivia. They'll beat my guest is my other podcast that I do with a bunch of trivia in it. And uh, let's let's challenge Mr. Kintad here for three, three questions inspired by Criminal Minds. Question number one. Edward Edwards played Detective William Lamontagne Sr., who we saw early in this episode, Died in his home, the hands of that vicious tree. Uh, <laughs> my question to you is, who won American Idol's 11th season, defeating Jessica Sanchez in the finale? Uh, uh, this one, I actually know, and thank you for the clue, Edward Edwards, because the winner of American Idol... Oh, it just went out of my head. I Give me a second, because I do know it. Um, it's like Edward Edwards. It was it was not John Johnson. It was uh, uh, Phil, Phil, Phil Philson? No, wait. Hold on. It's it's there on the tip of my tongue. Um, so, uh, it, it's uh, Robbie Robertson? No, that's a different person altogether. Hold on. It, it was... Uh, Oh, what was his name? It, it was. Oh my God! Why is it? I know this guy's name. I know it. AJ, hold on. <laughs> you think I don't know? There's something wrong with Kintad. <laughs> it's not Peter Peterson, <laughs> and it's not Michael Michelson. It is. Um, I know his. It is, it, it is Phil. Oh, no. It, Paul. <laughs> Paul. Paul Paulson. Wait, I know this guy's name. Oh, crap. Uh, give me just a second to compose myself, and I will tell you his name. And he sings the song Home. It's a fun song. God. Was it Phil Phillips? No, that's not right. Philip Phillips? Yes, oh. it's Philip Phillips. It was? Okay. Yes. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> I really I really wish now I had gone with my, my other gut instinct, which would have to asked ask for a different season, just so you'd think it was Philip Phillips and after all that. But 
Well, uh, well no, <laughs> it was Taylor Hicks. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, oh man, it was so weird. I like I immediately knew it, and it immediately left my my, my head. Immediately. Well, no, you're not alone. <laughs> Gonna make this place your home. <laughs> <laughs> Mummy Mumford. No, that's not it. <laughs> Who knew that one question would take up <laughs> five minutes of <laughs> agita? Uh, all right. All one right. for one. Let's move on. Uh, unintentionally, another music question. All right. What English band won the 1997 Eurovision Song Contest with the song Love Shine a Light? Their lead singer was born in sunny Topeka, Kansas. I don't know. And Eurovision is definitely something I've recently been exposed to and haven't uh, looked up all of the winners. I'm assuming since this guy was from uh, Kansas, the singer, uh, maybe it was an American band. I mean, Eurovision tends to be a lot of quirky European bands. Well, it was an English band. It just happened to have an American-born singer. Okay. Okay. I'm, I I have no clue. I'm not even going to try to guess um, beyond something that I'm going to make up. So I will make up a band name right now. And I'm going to say the band was Blue Steel. Ah, Blue Steel. <laughs> what well, would you no. do if I told you you were right? <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, probably jump out my window, AJ. I <laughs> doubt I am right. <laughs> well, no, you are certainly not right. And your gender bias is showing because that lead singer was a female. Ah, good point. Uh, yes, yeah. indeed. Clue there being, of course, sunny Topeka, Kansas, because she'd be walking on the sunshine. That would be Katrina and the Waves. Oh, wow. Katrina and the Waves. Hurricane wow. Katrina, Katrina and the Waves. That would make sense. That would have been a good guess for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. As it is correct, absolutely. Oh, my. Okay. All right. Now we get to my favorite question of each week, where we preview next week's episode, both of Felonious Pundits and of Criminal Minds. Todd, what is the plot going to be for Criminal Minds, Season 2, Episode 19, entitled Ashes and Dust? Ashes and Dust. Is it A... A pair of nine-year-olds go missing from a local mall. And the elders from the church they attend seem a bit too willing to help the search. Is it B? A serial arsonist spree leads the BAU to investigate some environmental activists. Is it C? Garcia joins the cast of a play called Ashes and Dust, and the murders in the script start to happen for real. Or is it D? When a local crematorium shuts down for repairs, the discovery of about 20 extra corpses is cause for concern. (laughs) Oh, wow. Some of these choices... I want to see all of them, except for the one that I'm going to choose that I think it actually is. I really would love. (laughs) 
to see. I, I would really, I really need to start writing my Criminal Minds fanfic. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, definitely because I don't think it is this uh, Garcia play episode. But man, do I want to see that episode? <laughs> but I actually am going to go for what I think is the least thrilling choice. I mean, the the first two choices were both not as thrilling to me, and thus sounded like the non-made-up choices. And I'm going to go with choice B. Choice B, the serial arsonist. Yes. And an investigation of environmental activists. Yes, that's it sounds like what criminal minds would throw at me at this point in a season when I'm ready for anything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, arsonists would imply perhaps ashes, um, environmental activists, perhaps protesting climate change or the like, and, uh, you know, drought would lead you to believe dust, ashes and dust. It all makes perfect sense, which is why the correct answer is indeed B. You did get it right. <laughs> Oh, what a shock. What a shock. Were you surprised? I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised. <laughs> well done. Well done. Yes, we'll be uh, looking at some arson and some uh, environmental activism and perhaps some corporate espionage thrown into the mix as well in uh, our next exciting episode of Criminal Mind. And our next exciting episode of Felonious Pundits, which I hope you guys are here for next week, uh, after this week. Uh, I don't know what that means even, but... Uh, yeah, unlike yeah. some of the characters who we meet along the way here, I hope you return for another episode. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but that is our show for the week, AJ. And so I'd like to just take the time to thank everybody for giving us a listen I hope you had a great time. Please be sure to subscribe to rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like, you can uh, spread the word and let your friends know about us. That would be much appreciated. You can also write to us at feloniouspundits at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore pundits. For Mr. AJ Mass, I am Kentad Svensgaard saying goodbye and keep profiling. Wheels up! My name is H.G. Wells. I came in here in a time machine of my own construction. I am pursuing Jack the Ripper, who escaped into the future in my machine. Malcolm McDowell, time after time.